Thanks for listening to the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church in Mullica Hill, New Jersey. We trust today's message will challenge you and move you closer to Christ. Here's pastor, teacher, and author, Phil Moser. If you've just started joining Fellowship, or you've joined us online in the process, um, back at the beginning of January, we made a commitment that we would try to stay in the Word together. And just by way of confession, maybe you have been perfect in that. I haven't been. But it's not about the perfection if you miss a day. It's about the fact that you want to keep pursuing the process so that you and I would stay on target in staying in the Word daily. And we took on, uh, uh, on three things at that stage. We talked about maintaining a daily time in the Word. You may remember if you didn't pick up your Kairos journal yet, there's still some at the Welcome Center. Um, we talk, we're going to talk this morning about memorizing Scripture for everyday challenges. But we also talked about making prayer your day-to-day pattern. And I loved uh, the fact that Pastor Kevin O'Brien stepped in last week in my absence and carried that baton forward in the idea of prayer. If you didn't hear that message and you've thought, well, you know, I don't know what to pray. I'm afraid I'll get it wrong. That's a great lesson to remember that the Holy Spirit is actively engaged in your prayer life, helping you pray in the right way and actually helping the Father grasp your prayer and your request. So go back and listen to that if you would. I want to talk this morning about memorizing Scripture for everyday challenges. And we're normally pretty how-to and practical in this, but I'm going to just talk about it from the Scriptures this morning about why we do it. And the how-to portion, if you've been following along on the, on the church's blog or if you've been receiving those text messages, we've been covering that in the text messages, how you can work on a verse 25 times the first day, 20 times the next day, 15 times, 10 times, 5 times. All of that how-to is out there for you. So let me just take you to Matthew chapter 4, if you would, and point out three things in Jesus' battle with temptation and how he answered with the scripture. And those three things are gonna be caught in these three words, which is why you and I should memorize the scripture just as Jesus memorized the scripture. Uh, The word of God is a reminder, the word of God is a discerner, and the word of God is a weapon, okay? So we're gonna unpack that in Jesus' story here. Before we read the text, though, just let me set something up for you. Sometimes we look and say, well, he's Jesus after all. So when he says it is written and he quotes from the Old Testament, it's easy for us to say, well, that's because he knew the whole Bible because he's God, right? And I just want to pause with you and remind you that he was fully God, but he lived his life within the intrinsic limitations of humanity, which means that he knew the Scripture. Okay, just let this thought settle in. It's probably maybe new to some of you. He knew the Scripture because he, can somebody finish it for me? memorized and studied the Scripture. That's right. And we know that in the Scripture because it says in Hebrews, he learned obedience. That is, Christ learned some things in his human form. He learned some things through the things he suffered. And we know in Luke chapter 2, for instance, that, um, that we know from Luke chapter 2 that it says he increased in knowledge and stature and favor with God and man. He was growing. He grew in his knowledge. Um, I was reminded of that the other day because, you know, I haven't talked about my granddaughter and granddaughters in a while, so it gives me a chance to do that. But Emily's about a year and four months now, and she is learning so fast, 
Like she just learned to say Grammy the other day. She hasn't learned to say Grampy yet. We're working on that, okay? But the point is, she's learning. And every time I go back, I look at her and say, wow, like, look how much you've learned. Like you walk around the house and you just say words, right? And I just want you to pause and remember, that's how Jesus was at some stage. He didn't come out of the womb as an infant saying to his mother, thank you for birthing me as a virgin, okay? He didn't do that. He grew and learned. That's Jesus. And so when we come to the word and we say, well, he knew it, he could quote it because he was God after all, I would remind you, he learned it the same way that you and I have to learn it. He studied it the same way you and I have to study it. Now, granted, he had advantages. He was without sin, but he still had to learn in humanity the same way that you and I learn. So in this passage in Matthew chapter 4, we're just going to read through it together, and I'm going to ask you to stand with me in respect for the Word as we read through it together. Just follow along with me in your Bibles or on the screen. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Go ahead and be seated. Let me show you just a few things out of this passage, if I could. The word is a reminder. In the first moment that Jesus answers with the phrase, it is written, notice what he says down in verse 4. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, just let me stop and pause and talk about this for a second. I don't know how long you've gone without eating, um, but 40 days is about the max that someone goes without eating without dying. And if you happen to Google people who have been without food for a long period of time, like 30 or 40 days, you see that muscles start to atrophy, skin starts to stick to the bone, like it's evident that they've not been eating. So just picture this, you have a carpenter who had been working with his hands all his life, he's coming into his public ministry, and as he does that, that strong body is physically starting to be depleted. So sometimes, you know, when you read this scripture and it says something like, he was fasting 40 days and 40 nights and he was hungry, you say, yeah, no kidding, okay? I'm sure he was hungry. But he was hungry in a different way. He was hungry in a way that he's about to pass out if he doesn't eat. And we know that because the text says, and it ends with, the angels came, came and ministered to him. It's like there was angelic ER, okay? This is what it, they triaged him and the, God sent the angels and said, he can't feed himself, you'll have to go feed him. That's his condition. And that being said, you might say, well, what's so wrong with him just turning a stone into bread? I think that's not 
the temptation here for Jesus. And I, the reason I would say that is because he pulls a verse out of Deuteronomy chapter 8. Now, Deuteronomy, real quickly, he pulls this verse out of Deuteronomy 8. You may remember that in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, second law, that it's this idea that the Israelites had been wandering in the wilderness for 40 days. The whole older generation had died off. The younger generation is coming into the promised land. And Moses says, I got to Deuteronomy, I got to give you the second law. I got to give you the law again because your parents didn't do their job and they didn't tell you what you were supposed to know. So he says, I'm going to teach you in the book of Deuteronomy what it is you should know. And in that passage, we read Moses writing to the younger generation, says, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you. Now stop there. Remember, the Word of God is working, when we memorize it, as a reminder for us. It's reminding us of certain things, okay? So when you say, well, I, I memorize stuff in Awana, I memorize stuff in high school, but my mind doesn't work very well anymore, and I don't just memorize that much anymore. I just want to remind you, you're missing the opportunity to remember something. Because Jesus quotes back into Deuteronomy to say, right now, in my temptation with the devil, I need to remember something. Now watch what he says. And you should remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart and whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know. Here comes the verse. That man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now, this is a verse that when Jesus quotes it, has an incredible context. Look at what he remembers temporarily about God. God led them, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. In fact, when you start reading in Matthew chapter 4, you see this. And Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. Mark says it even differently. Mark says the Spirit drove him into the wilderness using a verb that says the Spirit was taking Jesus where Jesus did not want to go, but where Jesus submitted and went. There's a leading of the Lord as he remembers this verse. And there's a testing that takes place here, too, that God was testing them to reveal what was in their heart, even though God already knew what was in their heart, he was testing them so that they would see what was in their heart. And when he did that, he humbled them. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, they should have realized that what was in their heart really wasn't all that great of stuff. Because you know this about the Israelites, throughout their wilderness journey, if you played family feud and the number one answer for what the Israelites do when they're on the journey out of Egypt up to the promised land, what's the number one thing they do? Complain, okay? They grumble. You can put any words you want in the package. They complain, they argue, they quarrel, they grumble, okay? This is what they do when they don't get their way, right? Now, just let that settle in for a little bit. That probably has application to people here, sitting in the pew, don't look at the person next to you and say, this message is for you, okay? That's not the point. It applies to all of us. When we're tested, we tend to grumble. In fact, it's very interesting, isn't it? Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, God let them hunger. Here's what I think the temptation is for Jesus. In Matthew chapter 4, it's not about him doing a miracle and turning a stone into bread, though he could have done that. It's about Jesus not complaining about the fact that the Father hasn't, looking at it physically, would not have cared for him properly. It's Satan saying, 
really, why don't you take care of yourself because your dad hasn't done a very good job, has he? Just the same way that the Israelites were tempted and they should have said in their hunger when the kids were crying because they're hungry, when mom and dad were complaining because they didn't have anything to eat because they wanted meat, they should have said, listen, stop complaining. If, if we're hungry, if we can't have what we desire right now, that must be in the purposes of God. It's, it's about us not complaining. It's about, us, it's about God letting us hunger so that we would know that God is the one who provides for us. And I love this that God might make us know that man doesn't live by bread alone. You can just track that whole section of Deuteronomy 8.2 and 8.3 through Jesus' life. You can see that he pulled, pulled a verse that he obviously had been reflecting on. He, a verse he'd memorized, a passage that he answered the temptation with because he remembered. Here's the first thing you want to know. Um, Jesus discovers in a very... visceral, physical way that the word of God is sufficient for him because he trusts it and he doesn't die in the wilderness. The father immediately sends angels once the temptation has been passed to minister to him. Yes, God did provide and God made him know that man doesn't live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The spirit of God, the word of God is a reminder so we gotta memorize it. The word of God is a discerner it's uh, just know that Satan is a tricky character, right? And so when Jesus answers it is written, the devil comes up with another approach. He'll say it is written, okay? He says, this time the devil quotes. By the way, this is a great reminder that just because someone quotes scripture doesn't mean it actually is what God means by what he says, right? Even the devil quotes scripture, okay? You may not have thought about it that way. You may have thought that, oh, no, no, the devil would never touch Scripture. Oh, yes, he does. He loves to manipulate it. And right here in the text, you see it. He says, it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Okay? Now, here's a great question I want to ask for a show of hands. But how many know where that verse is found? Because Jesus did. Jesus understood that this verse was out of context. In fact, just take your Bibles and go with me to Psalm 91, okay? Psalm 91. Psalm 91 is going to show you that this passage is not about us testing God. It's about us depending on God. Everything in this passage is about us abiding, us surrendering, us um, depending, not about us saying, I'm going to put God to the test. I'm going to step forward in great faith, and God's going to have to act. It's nothing like that. Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, that's where we're heading. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. The devil simply takes that verse, yanks it out of context. Look at verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty, and I will say to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. This is the psalmist saying, I'm not jumping off a pinnacle. I'm hanging out in the fortress. I'm abiding with the Lord. I'm remaining intent in my relationship with the Lord. I'm not going to jump out there and say, look what God did. Rather, I'm abiding. I'm not showing off. Look a little later in the verse. Verse 3, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler, from the deadly disease. He will cover you with his pinions or his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. 
You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by the day, nor the disease or pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that that wastes at noonday. None of this is about what Satan is claiming it is. It's all about us abiding, trusting, depending on the Lord. Look at verse 14. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. This is about the psalmist having a relationship with God. I will protect him, God says, because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This is a passage that is about God's comfort, not about God saying, you jumped off the cliff and I caught you. It has nothing to do with that. In fact, um, MacArthur captured it this way. No matter how important we may think our reasons are, to test God is to doubt God, right? If you say, I'm gonna test God, I'm gonna see what he does here, that means you don't really believe that he would do something. You doubt him. Now, this is important, because Jesus answers from another passage here. Jesus answers and says, you shall not put the Lord your God to a test. So I'm not gonna jump off this cliff because I should not put the Lord your God, my Lord my God to a test. And he quotes from two different places in the Bible. Now this is really cool, okay? So kind of buckle your seatbelts, watch this, okay? Jesus said in Matthew 4, verse 7, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to a test. Again, he goes back to Deuteronomy and quotes, You should not put the Lord your God to a test as you tested him at Massa. You say, what's that about? That's about the Israelites doing what they do best in the Old Testament, which is what? Say it with me. Complaining. That's right, okay? They were complaining to God in the Old Testament. They were testing God. They were complaining to him. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God. Jesus says, listen, it's not about me testing God. This is a process of God testing me. I don't tell God to do something. I rather am submitted and surrendered to what he asked me to do. He's testing me. I don't test him. But the other passage in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 12, but Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, here's the thing you need to know about Ahaz. Of all the kings of Judah, okay, he was the worst one. You say, well, why is he saying this? Okay. He's saying this because of his stubborn rebellion and his, when you read the text, and his stubborn rebellion and his arrogance, he's saying, I don't want to sign from the Lord, okay? I don't want to sign from the Lord. I'm just going to do this my way. That's Ahaz, okay? He, he was, a, while he was a really bad king, he had King Hezekiah, okay? So his son was Hezekiah, but he was a bad king. He's just pushing back at God here. But that's not why I think Jesus quotes it. Ready for this? Jesus is remembering verses that he's been studying, reflecting, meditating on. You may not know that that's Isaiah 7:12, but I bet you know this verse in Isaiah. Look at this. Isaiah chapter 7, the very verse that follows it, verse 13. Then Isaiah said, and he talks about that, but then he says verse 14, I'll write that New Living Translation. The Lord himself will give you the sign. Look, The virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and she'll call his name Emmanuel. It's like Jesus is saying to Satan, listen, you think I should test God? God's already given the sign. I don't need to do something to demonstrate the Father's already done the miracle, Jesus could have said, and that's why I'm here. I'm a result of the miracle. I will one day be the miracle. I can do miracles. 
he does not fall into it at all. He immediately goes back, just see this, he goes back to a verse that he's memorized in its context, and he quotes from it. In fact, it's so fluid, it's so, it almost seems so natural, it almost seems like he just breathes it out, that you're caught saying, wow, how does he know the scripture like that? Which, by the way, also, quick tangent, is why you just don't want to grab verses that you memorize out of context and, 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 and then say, well, I've memorized this verse, and this is the verse I'm holding on to, but it doesn't actually mean that in the Bible. In fact, I remember Jay Adams saying years ago, he said, you know, he felt Christians had a problem with what he called placitis. He said, it's not a gum disease, it's the fact that they take portions of Bible verses and they put them on plaques, okay? We, we might call it in our generation, Instagram-itis, okay? And he said, what I want to do is go into every Christian bookstore and create uh, context plaques. That is a puzzle that goes around the plaque and just stick it on the wall so that you see the verse in its original context. You would say, whoa, that's what it means. Okay? You and I should memorize these verses knowing what the verses around them say so that we're actually capturing what God meant by what he said. It's so fascinating. Jesus in this passage discerns the devil's temptation, because the devil took a verse out of context, and Jesus discerns it's out of context by looking at another verse in context. Beautiful. But it's not only that the Word of God is a discerner for us to understand Satan's temptations. The Word of God is a discerner in that it helps us see our own heart. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Here's a great question. I have found that typically when I am, when I am doubting something and someone speaks about my motives on something, whoever that might be, um, I sometimes get defensive. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Congratulations if you don't. Most people do, okay? If they say something like, I know why you did that, immediately it's like bars and barricades start going up. That's all around us. Like, uh, I'm going to protect my motives. What if we said, thank you for sharing. i got to spend some time with the Lord and with my Bible open so that the Spirit of God will help me discern my motives. What if we didn't get defensive? What if we just went to the Word and allowed it to become the discerner of our motives, which is what it's doing here? Beautiful. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Let me give you one final thought. The Word of God is a weapon. The Word of God is a weapon. And back to Matthew chapter 4, notice that there, there is in verse 10 almost like a crescendo here. Jesus has just been saying, it is written, it is written, it is written. At this time, exclamation point, he says, be gone, Satan, for it is written. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And what happens? The devil leaves him. Luke says in Luke chapter 4 that the devil leaves for an opportune time. This should be a great source of encouragement to you. You may feel like you're always under temptation 100% of the time. You're not. Satan cannot and, his, and his, the demons cannot tempt you 100% of the time. They are not omnipresent. Okay? They can't be over here and they can't be over in Europe and they can't be over in Ukraine. They can't be all over the place at the same time. So here's your picture that Satan and those temptations do depart. The temptation isn't as strong. What you and I have to learn to do is to answer with the Scripture. And I love this because the Bible actually uses that kind of language. 
In Ephesians chapter six, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. What's the devil's scheme? The fact that he deceives you. He makes something look very good and it isn't. You're gonna go ahead and chase it and then you're gonna find out after you've chased it and after you've sinned that it doesn't provide any kind of fulfillment that you thought it did and all of that fulfillment that you got is gone like in 30 seconds and now all you're left with is guilt and damaged all your relationships. That's his scheme, okay? How do we discern the scheme? Watch. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. I'm jumping to the end of the passage. Watch this. With which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation. Here it comes. Read this with me. And the what? Which is the what? The problem is that most people haven't memorized the scripture so they cannot use it effectively in battle. Now, just think about that for a second. You face a temptation. You say, where's my Bible? Oh, there it is. <sighs> gotta blow the dust off, okay? I gotta find a verse, okay? That's not gonna work, right? You do understand that the scheme of the devil is that he's already working deceptively in your mind that even if you Google the verse, it's not fast enough. What you and I need is instant, instant ability to handle the weapon. That's why Jesus says he's not out there looking in scrolls in the wilderness. He's out there saying it is written, it is written, it is written. He's answering because he's memorized the word. Now, just for a moment, understand this, that the word is a weapon against temptation and the word is a weapon against discouragement. Whenever I talk to someone who's struggling with a particular issue or a particular temptation, one of my first questions to them is, what passages have you memorized to help you? And I'm not making this up. Across the board, in probably 30 years of ministry, only one person has said, Phil, I took those 10 verses you gave me and I memorized them. And I didn't even know. He picked up a verse pack someplace and he said, and I memorized them. I know those verses. Across the board, everybody else says, well, I haven't really memorized much. And when we do memorize, we memorize kind of the wrong way. We don't memorize with an understanding of the temptation. So a number of years ago, the group of our elders, I said, listen, what if we just outlined all these lies we tend to hear when we're tempted with something? And so they helped me. They started emailing me 25-some temptations that we hear. And I said, and then give me the answer. Give me the truthful answer because the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. We've got to use it properly. We've got we to know the truth that answers the deception of the temptation or else we're going to fall to the temptation every time, right? We're just going to fall. And, and um, so we began to work those processes together. I took those 25 lies and I started to parcel them out in my thinking with the kinds of temptations we deal with. Like if you struggle with anger, have you ever thought about the temptations, the lies that you hear that come to your head when you get angry? Like if I get angry, I'll fix this. Okay. How many of you have thought that at some stage in your life? Right. Did you fix it? Okay. No, why? Because James tells us, it, James reminds us so clearly that we should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because the righteousness of, the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. The truth answers that temptation. And so here's nine of them. But I want you to think about it as a battle, 
okay? That's a battle. Not getting your Bible like this, but getting your Bible out of the sheath. What would it look like if you did that? What would it appear like if you memorized the word? And so it was no longer the word in the sheath. I can't find it. But you had immediate access to the scripture when you face the temptation. It might sound something like this. The lie goes, no one will know what you're about to do. Go ahead, no one is watching. And the truth answers, for no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed before the eyes of him to whom they must give an account, Hebrews 4.13. The lie says, the temptation is too difficult for you. Go ahead, give in. And the truth answers, for no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will with that temptation provide a way of escape that you may be able to bear it, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. The lie says, you keep falling, you'll never have victory. But the truth answers, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it at the day of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1, 6, and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, Philippians 4, 13. The lie says your past is too hard, you can't overcome it. And the truth answers, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, Philippians 3, 13, and the lie says you can't change that's just the way you are. And the truth answers, if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. The lie says God is keeping something good from you. And the truth answers, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing will he withhold from him who walks uprightly, Psalm 84. And the lie says, you can avoid the consequences. Have you heard that one? And the, and the truth says, for lust is a shameful sin, a crime that should be punished. It's a devastating fire that destroys to hell. It will wipe out everything I own, Job 31, 11, and 12. The lie says, God must want you to sin. It's so hard, right? And the truth answers, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, because God cannot be tempted, neither tempts he any man, but everyone is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. And the lie says, don't tell anybody your struggle. You can overcome this on your own. And immediately the truth answers. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. James 5, 16. Here is the truth. If you cannot answer quickly with the memorized word, you are not using the sword of the Spirit. You're not. That's why you're falling. Every time I do this demonstration, it feels violent, okay? It feels like somebody's gonna get hurt, right? Now, I'm just telling you, if you keep your sword in the sheath, you have not thought about how violent the temptation is. You have not thought about how someone is going to get hurt. You and I must learn to operate with the sword of the Spirit, drawn, not in the sheath. But that's not the only reason. There's one more truth tagged in here, and it's beautiful. 
The Word of God is a weapon against discouragement. The Word of God is a weapon against discouragement. It's not only amazing how it works with temptation, but it's a weapon against discouragement. And to show you that, just take your Bible and go with me to Psalm 22 for a moment. And as you're turning to Psalm 22, know that most people think of the 22nd Psalm as a prophetic psalm. That is, it prophesies what it's going to be like for Christ on the cross. And that's why we read verses like verse 7, all who see me mock me. And verse 8, he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Those are statements people make from the foot of the cross mocking Christ. Verse 11, be not far from me. Or how about these? Verse 16, um, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Direct prophetic understanding of what's going to happen on the cross. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And you read that and you say, wow, that's written like a thousand years before Christ was even born, let alone died. It's, it's a reminder that what's going on on the cross, stop right there, right there. I don't want you to think about the psalm prophetically for a moment. I want you to think about the psalm from how Christ would have perceived it on the cross. Think about this. He's on the cross. All of this is going on in front of him. His mind is probably drawn back to Psalm 22. Listen. Hands nailed, feet nailed to the cross. He couldn't open a Bible. He only had it because he'd memorized it. And into that moment, one of the seven statements made from the cross is verse 1 of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In fact, it's the middle of the seven statements Paul, Jesus makes from the cross. It's, uh, there's only three left. I thirst, and, um, and in your hands I commit my spirit, and it is finished. That's what he's going to say on the backside of making the statement. Here's my question for you. Why do, you think God, why do you think Christ calls that out from the cross? Because I think he was reflecting upon a psalm to carry him through his suffering. And he verbalizes that one like from the top of the cross. It would make sense, wouldn't it, that he would find encouragement in the end of that psalm. Uh, Posterity, verse 30, shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to people yet unborn. That's you and me. That he has done it, right? And it's almost like he goes right back to the top of the psalm and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He finds that the word is a weapon against discouragement. If you do not memorize it, you can't help but be discouraged. You don't have it when you need it. I had a cause to remember that just this past week. We were praying for, a uh, number of you saw that, um, Mike Satilli, um, we was on the prayer chain. He was in a pretty serious condition with COVID in the hospital. And um, when that's the condition, sometimes they let me in, sometimes they don't. I couldn't get in. And so I called him. And Linda said to me, Phil, as you're praying for Mike, just know this, that um, he, he, can, he really can only talk for 60 seconds because he gets so winded. So I was sensitive to that. And uh, he didn't answer my call the first time. And so this is last week. And so I... Um, so I I just read a psalm. I said, hey, Mike, I thought I was reading this psalm. I thought it might encourage you. And Linda reached out to me later to say, you know, Mike's home, praise the Lord. Um, 
he's home now, but she said, he played that psalm over and over and over again. He just kept playing your message to him, right? So yesterday, she responds by saying, Mike's back in the hospital again, so we want to pray for him, right? Mike's back in the hospital again, so I call Mike. And uh, I get a hold of him. He answers the phone, and I talk a little bit, and I said, hey, Mike, I, I got an idea. Um, I got some more psalms for you. So if you want to hang up, I'll read them to you on your answering machine, on your voicemail. And I read them back. And he said, you have no idea how that encouraged me. And I was reminded again that it wasn't about what I said that lifted the discouragement. It's about what God said that lifted the discouragement. What if... We became so fluid in passages that they came out of us like, like if you cut us, we bled Bible verses, right? What would that look like to the temptations we face and to the discouragement that we can help others face? This is why it's so vitally important that you and I memorize the scripture. And I know you might be saying, Phil, it's hard, it's challenging, it, My mind doesn't work the same way. It doesn't even hold on. I I walk into, I'm with you in this. I walk into one room and I forgot why I even came in that room. But I'm telling you, it's the scripture that's going to make the difference. It's the scripture that makes the difference. The word is a weapon against temptation. The word is a weapon against discouragement. So three things we learned from Jesus. The word of God is a reminder if it's memorized. The word of God is a discerner if it's memorized. And the Word of God is a weapon if we've memorized it. We trust you've been encouraged by today's lesson. For resources to help you move forward in Christ, we invite you to check out our website, aboutfbc.org, or our Facebook page, Fellowship Bible, Mullica Hill.